0: And welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today's episode is my interview with author Crystal Matar. Crystal is the self published author of Legacy of the Brightwash, her debut novel which is also a finalist for SPFB07, the self-published fantasy blog-off. She and I have become good friends since meeting each other on Twitter last year, and I'm so happy we finally got the chance to interview one-on-one. We had a great time digging into her writing journey, Legacy of the Brightwash, the self-published fantasy community, our shared love of Anthony Bourdain and Michael Pollan, and much more. Things often spiraled into uh, fits of laughter, but I also tossed in a few serious questions much to Crystal's surprise, which resulted in thoughtful explorations of things like identity, corrupt institutions, and colonization. Also, a quick note, due to Crystal's internet connection, she lives out in the boonies of Canada. We talked over each other a couple times because of lag. It's not as bad as I thought it would be, but we laughed it off. All right, now on to my interview with Crystal Matar. Here we go. All right, welcome everybody to another author chat on SFF Addicts. And I'm super, super excited to be chatting today with Crystal Matar. She is the author of the Tainted Dominion series, including her debut novel, Legacy of the Brightwash, which I have right here. Yes. Yeah, this chunky boy. It's
1: very chunky.
2: It's and it's so also handsome. a finalist
0: for the so handsome. A finalist for the seventh <laughs> uh, self-published fantasy blog off and she's also a parent and a farmer with a lot of children, even more animals and an excellent husband. And on top of that, she's a lover of whiskey, one of the most positive contributors that I know of to the self-published author community on Twitter and <laughs> someone I consider a dear friend, which is probably why this interview is going to be uh. a bit of a shit show and more off the rails than usual. <laughs> but <laughs> but You're hello me Crystal, blush already. Welcome that's to not the show. fair.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having got- me on.
0: I got my glass of port here, so we can uh, we can cheers to get this interview started off. I've got a
1: mug full of beer. Cheers.
0: Cool. Well, uh, first off, it's great to see you again. And how have you been?
1: Um, I've been busy and cold, but we're gonna make it. It's gonna be okay.
3: (laughs) We're gonna survive.
1: There's a lot of snow here. Yeah, we're gonna make it through one day we'll see the sun (laughs) like (laughs) adrian
2: you got to come down to the equator for that but
1: yeah
3: (laughs) yeah i'll have to try (laughs) well to
0: give readers a better sense of the real crystal matar what was your relationship with (laughs) reading and science fiction and fantasy growing up
1: that's a good question um I I don't remember a big introduction to fantasy. I, it was just always kind of, both of my parents read fantasy, so it was just always there. It was just fact of life. <laughs> you, uh, um, I'm trying to remember some of the earliest stuff that I remember is Redwall. So I know that's something that we have in yeah. common. I think uh, Redwall and and the feasting scenes. Um, so many feasts. And then. <laughs> um and then right around 12 or so I stumbled on David Gemmell novels which um kind of like rocked my world at the time where it just I was already writing but those those novels made me really want to I don't know take it seriously or whatever that meant and just I just I remember holding those novels in my hands thinking, "Man, I want to I want to write like this one day. Like this is amazing." So I read all of his novels and then he passed away. And then I stopped reading fantasy because nobody else could quite compare to uh the gap that he left. You and that's crushed. when I got into oh God. yeah, it <laughs> I, I still get, he died in 2006, and I still get emotional thinking about it. Um, but, yeah, I just, I I wanted to stay in fantasy. Like, I, I loved the genre, but just nobody nobody else compared at the time. Um, and I, <laughs> that's around the time that I bounced off a lot of the um the classics of the genre, so every time stuff like that comes up, I feel like, oh god, people are going to take my fantasy card away because I have no idea <laughs> what books these are. <laughs> but I think David Gemmell's well known enough that it buys me a little bit of street cred. But um, yeah, so after he passed away, that's when I got into cop novels and mysteries. And um, Dennis Lehane is a um, a writer out of Boston who writes the most incredible um, private eye type mysteries and thrillers. And yeah. And then I'm trying to remember how long ago, but I can't remember. Um, I just wanted to come back to fantasy and it just so happened. I was in um, the bookstore and I picked up a book by a gentleman named Anthony Ryan. Um, And in his acknowledgments, he said, um david gamel is the reason he was writing so if that felt that felt meant to be um so i bought that book and that <laughs> was my first my first i know um and he started self-published too so that would have been like his mm-hmm. his uh transition book i think he self-published that book blood song and then it got picked up by a trad publisher Um, and yeah, and and then, then, you know, Anthony Ryan, Brian's, yeah, he, he finished the trilogy and he's got another trilogy called, uh, Draconis Memoria that's so good. And then I think he went back to Valen recently, but, um, I'm really far behind and and then, but he's got a new (laughs) trilogy now starting with, anyway. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) just, the time that I was away, fantasy totally changed. It felt like where um, all of a sudden um, stories were just a little bit more human and a little bit more relatable um, at least compared to some of the stuff that I remembered bouncing off of. And, and it's like, yeah, this is where I want to be. This is, I want to figure out how to how to get here and do this. And then I stumbled on Twitter and, um accidentally found myself into the self pub community and um launched my debut in twenty twenty one but <laughs> and that is a very long there, there and there was, answer
0: <laughs> obviously there was a there is a point there where it's just like you actively started uh writing you know it's not like oh I found twitter in the self public community and then boom, legacy like the brightwash is just yeah. there. But like, okay. at which point did, did writing come oh, into yeah, the I'm picture to... for you? <laughs>
3: it's
2: like, boom, I have like grade. a 650 Na. page book.
1: <laughs> yeah. Isn't that how it always goes? Jeez, Adrian, it like, like where's yours? It, it
2: just pops.
0: It just
3: pops on okay. your ass. <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's where. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can't. I'm not supposed to answer this question now. Okay, so <laughs> I took a I took um, an unwilling break from writing um, each time I had a child, um, just because having children is so incredibly exhausting that there was no yeah. mental energy left for writing. Um, and then after child number four, or around the same time that I was, anyway a while ago, (laughs) I, I, I got really frustrated with, um, not writing and it felt like I had lost a big part of like myself, um, because writing carried me through some, some really hard times in my life. Um, and I was having good times, you know, with a family and, but it just felt like, a big section of who I was was missing. So I, I forced myself to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write. Um, I started with about a sentence a day and then, um, built up speed. (sighs) What year is it now? I want to say that was about 2016, give or take. So it took me a while to draft, um, what was a very bad and very messy fantasy novel that um, is actually going to end up being a trilogy. So I just kind of like threw a bunch of stuff at the page and none of it made sense. Mm -hmm. And then when (laughs) I stepped back to figure out how to make it work, it was like, yeah, there's a lot going on here. I think I can cut this up. That was, uh, that was large. So. um, (sighs) About. 2018 is when I cut the first chunk off of it and started trying to figure out how to make it into a book. Um, and that's about the same time that I was um, making really meaningful friendships on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. um, by act totally by accident. I followed um, Sam Hawk who wrote city of lies and through interacting with her, I met Nick Borelli. Um, yeah. And then through acting, interacting with him, I met Clayton and Angela and Luke and um, Justine Bergman and, you know, everybody, um, D.P. Wollscroft, fantastic people. Um, so I was getting to know them and getting to understand um, what self-publishing is capable of these days. And I was trying to wrestle this novel and. um it took a while <laughs> because <laughs> in the middle of that, we moved out to the country and lived in tents for six months. Um, oh wow! Which, which was an experience, and then
2: experience for sure. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
3: that was a choice we made. <laughs> um,
1: I think my youngest was like th- three. At the time, maybe four. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what time is. Um, (laughs) These answers are so terrible. (laughs) So I was, I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was learning from them, kind of what what real revising looked like and how to Mm. you know how to think about structure and stuff, things that I hadn't really been exposed to before. Because when I started writing, I. I kind of assumed that brilliant writers just wrote brilliance and then editing was picking out a couple of typos here and there um, and, you know, making sure the continuity worked. Um And, you know, and they just got all this incredible depth the first time. And I was like, I, ca- I can't do this. I can't write like this. So I'll write simpler stories, I guess, because I'm not I'm not smart enough to do this. But... <laughs> Fortunately, I got to talk to other writers who were like, "Yeah, no, the first draft suck and they they don't make any sense." And then you revise it and make it better. <laughs> so
0: I was learning how to do that, polishing a turd. Like hundred percent, it's polishing. Yeah, a Yeah, yeah,
1: it it really is because it, it it that first draft really sucks. But <laughs> I'm I'm assured that that's part, part part for the course. Either you write a really shitty first draft, or you write a. Um, a really shitty outline or something, but Mm -hmm. then you make it good. So through them, I learned how to make it good. Um, and I sent Angela, um, my first beta draft. Yeah. I want to say,
3: I want to say
1: in November of 2019, um, And so she had it for a couple of months and it was like, it was kind of like, I was asking her, like, I know it's bad, but do you think I could make it good? Like, does this make sense to you? (laughs) Does it kind of look like a book yet? Um, And the answer was yes. Um, But then 2020 happened. And so I was revising it through everything that happened in 2020 um, in this very old, very cold, very shitty little house and um it was kind of a refuge from everything but also it was cathartic because it deals it it deals with a lot of the things that we were witnessing in 2020 um accidentally like i i yeah. i when i started writing that book um i thought i was exaggerating kind of you know like i i thought i was way out in left field to make a point about how we value convenience as a society um and I just, I just thought I was taking the most, like the most extreme version of us as a society, um, and turning it into a fantasy novel. But it now it feels like um, I am too generous, <laughs> and too, uh, too optimistic. Um, so that, that's so what that book two fun. is for. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it feels weird um, <laughs> writing riots and protests and stuff yeah. in, with the backdrop of, you know, everything. So it's just, it's, it's been a really weird feeling <laughs> where I'm writing to what's happening, but then also I'm trying to write fiction. So like, it's a weird balance. Um, yeah, yeah I so I, I revised it through 2020. Um,
2: but what that
3: with,
1: and with that what came
2: out.
3: No, sorry, go ahead. What came out
1: of writing through that um, was a story about how love and community um, can save us from the darkness. And that wasn't there before. And I think it's really important. And I think it's the thing that's resonated the most with people that, you know, yes, it's really bleak and yes, it's really dark. But people standing for each other gets them through. Hopefully I haven't finished the series yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but at least with the So first now I want to know thing, what you, you were going to ask. You have this, this, uh, main character Tashue and everything mm-hmm. that's going on around him. He's sort of like the, the, the,
0: the loci of this, of this, uh, story and his personal community and, and everything. But how did you kind of develop the idea of the Tainted Dominion, like the world and the the characters? I think Tashue was 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 one of the first sort of like integral pieces in that, was he not?
1: Yeah, he. he I've been writing him for nineteen years now, and he started as a co- uh, no, he started as a teenager, but um, some of the first. Halfway decent novels that I wrote for him he was a he was a cop he was a a homicide detective um, and um the last couple of novels that I wrote for him he was he was chasing um a serial killer who killed children and so that when I pulled him into fantasy, that aspect of wanting to protect the innocent was just a natural part of his <sighs> I don't know. It was just, it was just part of him. And he had to keep that. Um, but then the, The the world, this is going to be another long answer. <laughs> um, Go for it. it's all good. I started writing the fantasy world, um, more traditional in, in its time settings. So more medieval and, um, you know, rise of the farm boy and all that stuff. And I really liked the world that I was doing, but when I decided I wanted to write about Tashui, I knew for sure that he wasn't going to fit in that for pretty obvious reasons. He's 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 his own guy. Um, yeah. So what I did was I I fast forwarded a few hundred years in their in their history. So all the stuff that I I wrote um, is canon as their mythology, and then I built off of that. And the inception from for this story was um, Tesla and their electric cars, where they there's a lot of media about how electric cars are so much better for the environment, but we're still mining those products, and we're st- and the electricity still has to come from somewhere. And yeah. we still have to alter the environment to get the electricity and to get what we need for the batteries and to get, you know, and we still so even though there's technically no emissions as you are driving it, those cars still have a really large footprint. And so I was thinking like, what would it take? What would what would it take for us to actually change how we um commute as a society? And it was, it's just like, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine what that would look like. Like, I can't, I, I don't know. I don't know what it takes. So it became a conversation about what people are willing to ignore and what people are willing to accept to maintain the convenience and status quo of of their lives. And listen, I'm complicit. I I have a track. He's He's got a big admission. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just, you know, it, it's just, it started as a thought experiment and it, evolved really quickly um so it they have to face the fact that their convenience and their industry is driven by um (laughs) how much do i say without spoilers (laughs) it's it's driven by human suffering (laughs) yeah yeah and so if things are going to change that society is going to have to um change a lot and it was just it just kind of it's it's the it's a question i've asked a question like how how much can people change um and what does it take to shock them out of status quo and um that's why it needed to be somebody who was in the system telling the story because it's it's all well and good for someone outside the system to say what you're doing is bad that's easy. It's easy to see from, from beside the problem. But if you're in the middle of the problem, it's really hard to conceive of what you've, how you've contributed and how complicit you are. And it's really hard to figure out where to go. So that's, that's why it had to be him.
0: Because your, your convenience is sort of, it's beyond just the fact of this is how I get around. It also comes down to... Mm -hmm. Um, this is my job, these are the people that I work with, the -hmm. economy, this is my employer. This is like sort of this institutionalized framework that I live my life by. And Tasha is just in the middle of the shit and it takes so much for him to break out of it that the, that the eventual, uh, clarity of vision is much more, um, jarring than it otherwise would be. And I thought that came across
1: super well. That's awesome. That's good to know. <laughs> um, that's, that that's really good to know. So some people say that they're frustrated with him for, for being complicit in it, but I, I, I don't know, man, like, it's really hard to see what, what, what harm you're perpetrating when your whole society is built on it. Right. And is it so, so
0: easy to just say like, Oh, there's this, uh, small change that I could make in terms of like recycling or yeah. doing compost instead of throwing all my stuff in the trash, whatever, or switching to an electric car. But it's so yeah. difficult to, to to really like break it down to the nitty gritty and understand like, Oh, if I have an electric car, the lithium batteries are coming from lithium mines in Bolivia or, or where have you.
3: <laughs> yeah, but you get for it ta-
0: for, for Tasha in particular. It's like, He's so ingrained in the system and has been for 19 years. A lot of people who have been in a position for 19 years, like almost two decades, your mind would be fucking molded by whatever you're involved in. And it would take a huge, huge hit to the head, you know, over and over and over again. It's (laughs) not something that you can just (laughs) change immediately. It's like, no, you need to, you need to be incrementally. Uh, opened up to the truth of the matter. And then you have to get to the point of accepting it because truth is not always guaranteed to be accepted by people.
1: Yep. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm trying to say. A plus you get a good, that was a good book report.
0: <laughs> oh, I <thank>
3: you. <laughs> my fourth
0: grade book report. I'm so happy. Although there's way too much sex in your yeah. book for there to be a fourth grader. <laughs> fourth grade. <laughs>
1: yeah 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 i wouldn't give it to fourth graders
0: (laughs) no please don't give it to fourth graders (laughs) there is penetration in this book
3: (laughs) yeah (laughs) thanks for bringing that
1: up (laughs) it's true though I know, and I, I know what I wrote, and I'm proud of what I wrote. But it's it's still weird to look people in the eye and chat about it.
0: <laughs> Be proud of it, Crystal. Be proud of it. Come on.
1: Yep, I'm doing good. <laughs> but this,
0: but this actually leads into um, what I want to discuss about a few themes from Legacy of the Bright Wash that sort of reflect upon its characters and its okay. stories. We've already talked about corrupt institutions, um, but beyond. Beyond like convenience, I think it also ties into things like individuality and freedom. And this also ties into your representation of indigenous peoples and tainted, talented, magical powers, however
2: you've uh, incorporated that into your world.
0: Do you want to elaborate on that?
3: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're really dropping heavy questions on me, dude. So (laughs) I always do. (laughs) so i i
1: it wasn't it wasn't intended that only um the indigenous analogy people can use talent but they're the ones that understand it um and Mm -hmm. the society of the dominion has pushed it away from a natural flow um in order to um commodify um to commodify it
3: so <sighs> <laughs> this is a really hard question to it i feel like it came as
1: part of the story just because the story became um, you know an uh, an analog of North america um and if I was talking about the cost of industry, it seemed natural that i would I would also talk about our footprint here um, as I was exploring what
3: what um what freedom looks like. So, you
1: know, a lot of people are talking about what freedom looks like these days. Um, And some people think that, you know, eating hamburgers without masks on is what freedom looks like. But some other people are saying (laughs) it goes a little deeper than that. And the ability to govern govern (laughs) oneself, yep. The ability to govern oneself, and the ability to know their own history, and the ability
3: to uh, direct the
1: society that they live in. Is, is freedom that a lot of people can't possibly appreciate because they, they, they have it so naturally that they can't even conceive of what it would look like if they lost it. And so when I was writing about um, an economy that has commodified humanity, it seemed natural that I would include, um, an indigenous society who truly understood the weight of that. Um, and so that's how (laughs) it all unfolded that, um, had, um, indigenous roots that he's lost, that, um, he doesn't know how to find, but that has impacted how he views the laws in the society that he's in because his his mother told him to follow the laws to stay safe but those laws didn't protect her and he has to reckon with the weight of that um in order to really stand up and change it and so um i reached out to a fantastic sensitivity reader Whose help has been just above and beyond what I could have hoped for um, and working with them has just been it it felt like a gift that um i don't i'm I'm still not convinced I deserve it, but they gave it to me anyway um you do trust me
2: <laughs> I've talked to them, I talked to them through you. Oh, your recommendation.
0: And that's true.
3: Yeah,
2: they have nothing but shining things to yeah, say about that, you. So, I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, it's it's been an incredible relationship. Um, just go, getting to know them on a personal level, and the way that we've been able to kind of share um ourselves by discussing theoretical trauma has been really healing. Um and yeah, it 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 just once again it felt like one of those things that was just meant to be. Like I I don't know that I I set out writing this book um with that intention that it would it would take such an important part of Tushwai's um identity. It it was it was kind of a last minute decision because for the longest time I thought, no, I like I I can't, I don't, I don't, this isn't my identity. I, I shouldn't touch it, I should leave it alone. But then kind of at the last minute, I was looking I was looking at the SALT and Saved website, which is the agency. Um and
3: I, as they tell it, their uh
1: profile had been posted on the website that week and oh, wow. so I was the first person to reach out to ask for them as a reader and so like once again it just felt like it, it was just meant to be I guess like right. I I can't explain it yeah yeah <laughs> exactly and so so they pushed they pushed me to to make it heavier and make it more central to the story and just really push it and I'm I'm really grateful that that they did that and that, um, they just so happened to sign on at salt and sage the exact week that I was, um, wondering if I should do it. So there you go. Mm-hmm.
0: That's amazing though, because, you know, for me, I've, I grew up in Canada and, you know, this, yeah. um, this notion that you present of, of sort of like I've phrased it as like the degradation of humanity, you know, which to me is a corruption yeah. of of nature of nature itself because us being a part of nature
2: yeah.
0: is a corruption that yep. that goes deeper than just us and and you know all the indigenous people in Canada that I grew up with or met there's always this really fine line between um like you say with Tashue's mother telling him to follow the laws and you'll be okay, but it's like how much do those laws really protect you and to yeah. what point are those laws um undermining your real identity and your culture and your history and that's something that that suppression is something that I witnessed so often in Canada when I was growing up and you know obviously like I'm a white dude yeah. and it was not so <laughs> clear to me back yeah. then just through my through my position but but I, I look back on it now and there's just so many Instances where the the suppression and the trauma rings true to this day, and the the generational yeah. effects of it
2: are unbelievable, yeah. unimaginable for a lot
3: of oh, people. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it, it's something that we all have to reckon with um, as colonizers, um, and whether or not we participated in any of it is is a mute is a moot point because people are still suffering and um you know it it's hard to know what to do but fuck man we got to figure something out you know and of course yeah so it it just it felt like an opportunity just to put it on the table to be discussed um cuz i i you know i can't i don't know how to fix it i can't i can't claim to have any answers but the answers will come if we have conversations, I hope.
2: Yeah. So it, that's the key to it all.
1: The
3: book this ended conversation. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is a much heavier it's, conversation than I was expecting.
0: You wrote a heavy book, you know, both physically and thematically. Yeah, so. I guess I
1: did. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah but something for something for you that's um i guess a lot more like it rings a lot closer to home is the notion of you brought up earlier how sort of love and trauma can be a motivation for change but then there're also really heavy themes of parenthood and childhood innocence yes. but also you know from the parent, parental perspective responsibility you know which is really looming through a lot of the, a lot of the novel. So as a parent yourself, like how did
2: you approach that aspect of the book?
3: Um,
1: (laughs) Tasha has been a parent longer than I have. Um, If I, if I think back to like his earliest stories, um, so not so much when, when he, the first couple of years, but I mean, he he had kids before i did so like it was just another one of those things where it it was just <sighs> he's always kind of known who he is and i'm just along for the ride <laughs> um <laughs> and so <laughs> as brightwash evolved um or rather as i pulled him into fantasy novels that that was another thing that i knew for sure as um I wrote him into fantasy novels. I knew that that was going to stay, not necessarily because it was something that, um, I experienced just, it's just that it was, it was true to him. But, um, Stella being a parent was something that I, I built because there just aren't a lot of mothers in fantasy. Um, and it just it felt like i think for somebody to look at him and see that the choices that he made were wrong but he was trying his best i think and it would have to be another parent who would be able to see that and understand the weight of that in a way because um parenting has no easy answers um no <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's no manual and there's no obvious uh answers and so i f- i felt like when i was trying to create a love story for him i i kind of knew that it, it would take another parent to understand him um and that's where stella came from um just because he needed somebody um, to kind of be his true North and to, um, to be a goalpost that would help him try to be a better person and try to make better choices because he, he was, he was kind of frozen by the trauma that um, he endured and he, he's kind of, seized up and he ceased to grow for a long time. Um, And so he was just kind of struggling through and barely surviving, um, trying to raise his son, but he needed, he needed somebody to show him that he he was capable of more. Um, And it, it had to be apparent. It, it just, it was just obvious.
2: And it worked. I mean, in in terms of how,
3: yeah. Their
0: uh their POVs, their sort of like dual perspectives overlapped with one another. I think it fleshed out because it's like you see the externality and the internality of each character and the confusion that can sometimes come across of trying to trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and oftentimes fucking up and not really understanding <laughs> fully what they're yeah. going through. And there's a lot of miscommunication and and to me it was one of the more realistic romances that i've read recently in in fiction in general because there's just uh there's confusion and there's hesitation and there's the weight of parenting to give it all more complexity because it's like when i have the responsibility to this child you know from tasha's perspective it's his son yeah. to stella for stella it's um Charedwin, I think that's how you say her name, right?
3: yeah yeah, so
0: there's there's just a weight there of responsibility to this child that a lot of the time supersedes you know getting all hot yeah. and bothered about some sexy man or woman you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's something that we all kind of have to navigate um as parents. It's like, who are we now, and how do we fit? in this new version of our lives where we're responsible for another person and that's that's not to say that we cease to be ourselves but it 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 does change you know it, it changes um kind of all of a sudden you're thinking of the future in a in a different way and day-to-day safety and keeping these little hooligans alive <laughs> Despite yeah. their best efforts. Um <laughs> is yours walking yet?
0: Parenting. Oh oh man. He's <laughs> he's a tornado. He's running now and he just hits himself on everything. <laughs> oh, as much as we try yeah. to prevent it.
1: See uh. Yeah, you can't there's yeah. there's only so much you can do. And it's like the 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 best you can do is just be there. Um to make them feel better when they've fucked themselves up, um, Parent, and parenting yeah, parenting is, is shit, like, man. yeah, it's it, it's just it's just this marathon of trying to keep this other human being alive when it seems like they're trying not to be alive, like exactly. This, anyway, <laughs> so so that that changes you, man. Like. <laughs> that alters who you are and how you see the world
0: in very very deep and profound ways. Yeah, I can attest to all of that because it's seriously just <laughs> Yeah. How many times in a day are you going to threaten your own life? And it's just, you know, Yeah. I don't want to be like Way a helicopter more than you parent. Imagined. Yeah. I don't want to be a helicopter parent or anything like that, but at the very least it's like like you say being present and Avoiding catastrophe uh whenever you can, but yeah. also being there when they hurt themselves because it's an eventuality. They're gonna yeah. fucking bump their head yeah. or like skin their knee or whatever, and you just have to be there and say it's <laughs> oh. okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like, and kind of teach them how to cope with the catastrophes that they've made.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. uh maintain emotional stability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or something like it. (laughs) Something like it. Because even as adults, it's like we're erratic as fuck. We're just, you know, for the most part, human beings are just messy. But for a kid, it's just like, let me teach you as much as possible to maintain your emotional composure, (laughs) or at least to the point where it's like you understand that it's not forever. It's like this is temporary. You can be okay.
1: Yeah. This too shall pass (laughs) and the blood will stop.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Oh, fuck.
0: So how are you, how are you taking some of the themes that you've established here in the first book and carrying them in? You've already finished uh, the first draft of the sequel and you're in the revising stage, but how are you, how are you carrying on some of those themes or taking
2: in new uh, themes and perspectives into account?
3: Um. So
1: the the next book, Tashue, um has kind of removed himself from the ability to change things for a little while um, by doing something stupid at the end of the first book. Um, so we shift. <laughs> we I don't know how many people have read it yet. He we shift um, to other people for a while while they try to clean up his mess um and try to get through whatever comes next um but that that sense of community um stays um i think i've lost most of my parent povs um for a little while well not lost but i've set them aside for for the moment yeah. um they're fucking gone man <laughs> object permanence right like if i take them away you won't remember um (laughs) but so if if bright wash is you know follow the law and you'll stay safe but what if the law is wrong and what are you willing to do about it then legacy of brick and bone is very much um you do whatever it takes for the people you love and then so the the main characters have to figure out um what it takes and where their boundaries are and how hard they're willing to push on those boundaries to um survive basically um and to keep the people they love um surviving so that that spirit of taking care of the people that you love remains. It just, it shifts to different relationships. um,
3: Yeah. A bit. Just a little bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, like it's not a whole new cast. We've got, we've got Lauren um, taking a bigger role. So his, his, everything he's doing is to try to help Jason and then we also have um ishmael taking a bigger role and so everything he is doing is to try to help all the people that he cares about um (laughs) so hard to know how much i can say um (laughs) and ishmael (laughs) surprises some people i think by having a very large heart and by trying his best to take care of people but by being to no one's surprise very deeply flawed (laughs) so he's he's got to reckon with um he is he's a he's a shit um so he's got to reckon with um what he's what he's fucked up um and how he's gonna fix it but he's he's also got to reckon with what tashoy's fucked up and how he's gonna fix that too so i've heaped a lot of shit on his plate
0: (laughs) I'm I'm excited to see how he deals with it, how all of them deal with the sort of aftermath of
2: (laughs) of the end of book one.
0: And we'll, we'll, yeah, we're not going to spoil anything. It's the end of a book. Shit happens, right? (laughs) Shit
3: happens. Shit happens. Boy, does it.
0: (laughs) So I want to take a little bit of a turn towards uh, the self pub uh, author community. Obviously, you've made it to the finals of the SPFBO7. Um, so how does it feel for you to make it to the finalist round and then building on that, how important is it for you, um, to sort of like maintain a healthy environment within the self pub community? Because I watched the SPFBO seven panel for TBR con, and there was such a good rapport between everyone. It seems like everyone had good spirits and good, uh, you know good vibes towards each other so how important is it to sort of like maintain
2: that and build that healthy environment
1: yeah i mean we're definitely we're we're all kind of um i don't know if we're all in the same boat but we're definitely all weathering the same storm so the the togetherness helps um and like you know the thing about spiffbo is it brings a lot of attention to the indie community and so we're not really it doesn't ever feel like we're in competition with each other it it feels like we're just we're standing on we're standing in the spotlight um together as as a unit hopefully bringing um attention and respect to the community um that unfortunately still has a bit of a stigma about whether or not we're professional or whatever but and and i can say that You know, I'm not necessarily a professional person, but my books are polished (laughs) and professional. So professional quality, um, yeah. Yeah, professional quality. Let's say that. (laughs) So um so in that, you know, being being a finalist um was really amazing. Um I don't know what I expected, but I think part of me still convinced myself that it wasn't going to happen, because I mean it, it's one out of thirty to get the finalist spot, which is not great odds, and then it entirely depends on who you're up against, and it entirely depends on the judge that you get. Um, yeah. and there were some there were some heavy hitters in my group, um, and I i i have a bit of survivor's guilt <laughs> because i feel like um some of those other books were really good too and i'm sorry um but that's that's just me but certainly i, bad, I hope okay. that people are it's checking the nature out competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> But uh, I mean, hopefully people are checking out semifinalists. I think I think people are, and they should mm-hmm. because there there are really really good books out there, um, and so yeah, making making it to the finalists ten felt like the win, and then now we're just experiencing the the long process of winning because all ten of us have a lot of attention, um, and a little bit extra clout in the uh in the industry which is very crowded so it helps to have a couple of things that you can say that you've accomplished so that people recognize what you're up to um and then yeah the the other finalists getting to know the other finalists is really great and just generally getting to know the the self-published industry has been amazing it like it totally changed my outlook on Um, the ability to make this a career Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing um, in this industry for a while thanks to the amazing people that I've met
0: yeah well on that note what's your what's your take on like the current state of self-published fantasy or sci-fi for that matter and do you have do you have hopes for its future, like more things that you'd like to see that you think it's, it's missing Um, or not even just like something that's missing, but, but the recognition that the self-published community deserves.
1: Yeah, I would, the only thing that I would wish for is just, yeah, recognition because um, I'm not sure that um, consumers talk about indie spaces quite the same way in other arts as they do, um, in writing. And I'm not sure where that comes from. Cause it's like, if you talk about indie music, for example, no one ever really says that indie musicians aren't professional. Um, exactly. So <laughs> like, so I'm not really sure where that comes from. um, but i it is it's definitely shifting um where w- we are proving by working our asses <laughs> off that the stories that we tell are are maybe a little bit outside of the box but they're certainly um you know <laughs> we're working really hard <laughs> um to make professional quality products that um can really resonate with people. Yeah, so I- I'm I'm delighted to be part of the the crowd um shifting and gaining popularity and gaining respect. And it just it feels like a really cool space to be in where we get to experiment and try things out. Um and if ideas don't work, we just keep rolling and we can we can shift and pivot really fast and we can um Try some really wild things and and just kind of, you know, be the crazy art kids. Um,
3: so <laughs> I'm totally off the
1: rails here. So many distractions no, in this house. Um, but yeah, I think I I I'm I'm really excited to be part of it. And it does definitely feel like we have. I don't want to say more freedom because it it does feel like um mainstream at sff is doing some pretty cool things too in 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 tandem with us and it, it just seems like the two crowds are kind of feeding off each other a little bit in a really cool way where mm-hmm. it's like indie tries something and it gets some attention so trad pub goes for it and and then trad pub is is off into some new ideas and the indie crowd sees it and goes yeah that's that's a good idea and so it, it doesn't necessarily ever feel like we're um totally in competition it it feels like we are bleeding together and there's more and more writers that are doing both where they they have their their contracts with the big house but they're also self-publishing their own stuff so it just it it feels like more um a more connected industry than i think Mm -hmm. i was aware of before i got into it um and yeah it's it's exciting to see more respect.
2: No, I think
0: you, you hit it perfectly because obviously in the indie community, there's more flexibility for experimentation and yeah. the, speed, the speed at which things go. Obviously, the traditional publishing industry is much slower. There's uh, the yeah. time it takes to edit. Um, there's also the time it takes to uh, print the books and, and get it through all these different passes before yeah. it hits the stores. Obviously, they have to take into account retailers and transportation and all this stuff. But in the indie community, there's like a much more fast paced nature to it. But I like what you said that they feed off of each other because I think, um, the indie community has the opportunity to, uh, create new niches or at the very least give readers the opportunity to discover something that they really like. And then that expectation is, is established and hopefully the traditional, Publishers pick up on that and start to seek out more diversity of ideas and and representation.
1: Yeah. The, the indie community, because we were able to move a little bit faster, we can test markets, um, and see what hits. And, And, and it definitely does feel like the, the big publishers are watching and seeing what, what's working. Um, and then. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's definitely not, um, one or the other. It, it definitely both are doing some really cool things.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Kind of like in tandem, but also separate at the same time. So it's like, yeah, eventually, eventually there's, there's often a confluence of, of, uh, similar thinking and, and that's when the industry really pushes forward more heavily as a whole towards bigger and better things
1: yeah 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 it's it's really cool to be a part of I'm yeah I'm in it for the long haul I think
0: (laughs) but it's also opened my eyes to the possibilities you know you you mentioned hybrid authors and I think there's so much more opportunity out there it's like you don't need to fucking pigeonhole yourself and 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 think that oh I'm gonna go into traditional and like and like self-publishing is my fallback or something like that it's like Self-publishing can stand on its own as a viable uh path for an author. Yeah. But you can also mix it up and do hybrid. You can release a series traditionally, but you can also release novellas uh self-published. You can do so many more things and mix it up. But I think all of it boils down to how hard are you willing to work to create quality yes. content because people will go for the quality. If it's shit. That gets buried because it's shit, <laughs> so of course <laughs>
1: yeah 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 i i never I never queried brightwash um I wrote a query letter, um but by the time I was you know I wanted to work with a sensitivity reader before I queried, and then the agency where I found the sensitivity reader also had editors, and so by the time I started getting um that stuff going it just felt like well why don't i just finish the process myself why why put it in the hands yeah. of somebody else and and wait and see and so yeah for me um i i never queried bright wash because i was too impatient to finish it i just i just wanted <laughs> it i just if i was gonna make if if i was gonna make this work I didn't want to wait for somebody else to take a chance on me. I wanted it to be like, okay, I'm going to do it. And if I fail, then I'm done. It's fine. I tried my best, but if I succeed, it's your failure and you can own it. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I didn't want to sit in somebody's inbox for a little while waiting to see how, um, you know, if a market trend was going to be in my favor. Um, and, I mean, no disrespect to people who go that way. Like, it, it, there are some really amazing writers doing really amazing stories. And, um, you know, and I, they're great. I, I love them. They're my friends. And um, I – but I just – I just – I think the best the best thing I ever saw was um, when I was trying to decide – um, Dirk Ashton was on a panel with uh, a couple of other guys talking about the differences between self pub and um, trad. And Dirk said mm-hmm. that it's, it's like the difference between being an employee and an entrepreneur. And both of them are hard and both of them have qualities, but you just have to pick which one fits your personality best. And, 100%. and when he said that it was like, yeah, light bulb. Okay okay, I get it. And, and then I was already hustling. I was thinking about who I'd, I'd want for my cover. And I was thinking about, you know, what kind of editing I was going to do. And it was like, Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. I am an entrepreneur. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so
3: I think you I made the decision too before much, uh... I knew that
1: I'd made the decision.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I think, I think for you, it's like your impatience would just make it too difficult to be somebody else's, somebody under somebody else's belt. It's like, you need to be self-directed and self-employed because you would get frustrated. You know, I'm like this a a lot of the time too. It's like, I've been my own boss for a long time and I get frustrated when other people take too long to do something or do it in such (laughs) a way where it's just like, that's not, not what I envisioned at all.
1: You yeah know. no just forget it let me do it myself
2: <laughs> exactly
1: just fuck yeah. off let me do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yep so that 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 was that was that was the statement that made it really clear to me that it's like it's not mm-hmm. it's not one or the other like they're both they're both of quality it's just what do you want to be like what how much how many different hats are you capable of wearing? Yeah. And how much control do you want? And and um, and if you're an entrepreneur, then you know hopefully you can grind and you can make it work.
0: Yeah, but I think the the grind applies regardless. It's like whether you go traditional or self published, yeah. the grind exists, but it just comes in different forms. You know, it just depends yeah. on what what yes, you're willing to do yourself and what you want to put in other people's hands.
1: Certainly, self uh, or traditionally published authors are expected to be on social media um kind of having a presence so it's like there i think there's less um
3: <sighs> there's
1: less of a difference than people realize um between one um identity or the other because um trad pub authors uh, got a market. They gotta, they've got to, they've got to be there. They've got to shout about their books. They've got to interact with people. It's just kind of like the back room stuff that, that we're in control of, but the, the, um, the social presence is very similar between the two.
2: Yeah. That's something I've noticed for sure. But winding down, I want to spend a moment
0: talking about our two of our shared cultural and uh literary idols our dear Anthony Bourdain may he rest in peace and Michael Pollan so what can you (laughs) what what can you tell me (laughs) what can you tell me about each of them and why do you love the work that
2: they that they put out
3: I think
1: um so I came to Anthony Bourdain first um and I think I think the first thing that I saw of him was the CNN show that he was doing, um, Parts Unknown.
3: Yeah.
1: That's what it's called, right? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah.
3: And, you know, he really
1: did something amazing with that show where, you know, he pushed it beyond your traditional traveling show. And just kind of forced people to look and to bear witness um, to things that we probably wouldn't have been exposed to a lot um, in other ways. Because it sometimes it's hard to conceptualize what people are going through when all you've got is headlines and stuff. But he, the way he formatted that show was just so incredibly human where he was there on the premise that he was going to go eat food with local people and then you could and through that you could just see how incredibly human um life is and it like it it didn't matter if he, if he couldn't communicate with the people and he needed to use translators, you could still see the connection. And it's just that reminder that, you know, we're all we all boil down to the same basic needs of safety and sustenance and the same basic driving principles of taking care of the people we love. Um but the world throws a whole lot of shit at people, um, (laughs) and different kinds of shit, depending on where you are. And that, that show, (laughs) that, that show really plugged me into, um, being aware, um, in a way that I wasn't before. And I, I don't remember what years it aired, but like i I think I was pretty young when when I started watching it, certainly at least in my mid twenties and you know I, parts I was unknown
0: not... was more uh that was like the late sort of like uh started in the twenty tens and then it and and then it ended right up until it went up until he he committed suicide so so I think it yeah, went for like a good uh, seven, seven or no, sorry, like twelve seasons. Yeah, so it was it was quite a long show.
1: Yeah, so ten years ago, it, it that tracks. Then ten years ago, either my third child was not around yet or very young. Um. Yeah, so it it just plugged me in in a way that um I I hadn't been before. Um and then and then, of course you know you follow you follow his career to backwards to all the other things that he's done and he's he was so
3: he's he's kind of the perfect example of that
1: that adage of um kind but not nice um, yeah. you know he was. <laughs> you know that you have people that are nice but not kind and then you have people that are kind but not nice and and um he he was he did not give a lot of fucks until he did give a lot of fucks and he just like he just (laughs) the community that he he built um Was just really amazing to witness, and and his his writing is so like (laughs) I I can't even find words for it. He's so irreverent, and um, you know, nothing is sacred to me. It to me is just yeah, yeah, and in that lack, I don't want to say a lack of respect, but in that in that imperfection that he he was willing to address things had more meaning somehow and it just it just an incredible voice of our generation um so that's (laughs) that's my long rambling answer of anthony bourdain and uh, so i read i read kitchen confidential recently um, and the story that he tells of growing up and visiting France and being like a total shit as a child was just yeah. so funny. Um,
0: <laughs> like a little shithead and, eating oysters. Oh, beautiful. <laughs>
1: yeah, and like he they, he was talking about how him and his brother, like his parents, were touring France, and and they were mega foodies, and all of his, all his him and his brother wanted was hamburgers and french fries and coca-cola and you know his parents were devastated (laughs) and then (laughs) the the story where they left the children behind in the car to go eat at a restaurant that was going to be really special and and he was like it just (laughs) so like it just it was so I don't know it was just exactly what i needed at the time just this human experience of of food and vulnerability and trying to figure yourself out um and probably kind of failing but you know that's okay we loved him <laughs> you know
0: so yeah i mean failure uh, failure's is just a part of the game you know
1: it's yeah it's true we we get we get really focused as a culture on winning and on success, but you know, for every, for every win, there's, there's losses. And I think the losses shape us a lot more than the wins do because a, a win is, is so temporary. And, um, but the way we adjust when we lose seems to be more permanent, so, anyway, <laughs> that's my Anthony Bourdain uh, rambling. Uh, what
2: about Michael Pollan?
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> the first thing that I saw from Michael Pollan was his Netflix documentary called Cooked. Um, and it was that, I think it was like four or four episodes or five episodes, um, just kind of about the history of food which makes it sound really dry but i promise it isn't (laughs) um and the very human um experience of what food does to us as a culture you know so we focused on yeast which is bread and beer and he focused on um
2: fire i think is one of them
0: as well. i don't remember
1: yeah fire was one of the episodes and like it was just again it was just so like the premise sounds really dry but it was so incredibly human um and inspiring and um connecting again where you know that once again it's it's an expression of how whatever language we all speak we're all just trying our best to provide for the people we love so it was that same kind of um connection so i followed him through his um his food writing so um the omnivore's dilemma and um the botany of desire um which isn't as sexy as it sounds (laughs) um (laughs) what's that one I'm trying to see what it's else, sexy I know. If you're a plant. but yeah.
3: So I followed him through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: and he he had he had uh, he had quite a few stuff on Netflix for a while, and then he s- shifted his focus a little bit to psychedelics. Where <laughs> uh, it's still things, <laughs> yes, mushrooms and um, peyote and, and mescaline and opium. And that, um, <laughs> that's another one that was just, it It kind of, it was not something I was super plugged into. Um, now it's been a while and all that, but like, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about the history of all of that stuff. Um, and so it was really, it was really interesting to read um this is your mind on plants specifically with you know his experimentation with um poppy opium poppies um and then what was the middle and oh caffeine and caffeine
3: then and then mescaline
1: yeah and he he approaches it so academically But also like the stuff is some, some schedule one, um, narcotics. So like, it was just such a, I'd already, I'd already kind of been kind of hippie-ish in my stance on plants in general, where, you know, what makes one thing illegal and another thing, um, not when we're talking about plants and, you know, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's not harmful. Like, you know, ricin is natural and it Mm -hmm. kills you. But at the same time, (laughs) some of it feels like government overreach, especially when you read the histories of, um, you know, the, the North American drug wars, the war. Um,
0: Yeah. The war on drugs or like the opium wars in China.
3: Yeah 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 that um i read a
1: um oh i'm not gonna be able to remember what it's called now but i i i read a a good series that you would probably like specifically about the um the opium wars and i can't remember it so i'll text it to you later (laughs) and you can put it in the show notes (laughs) or something i don't know (laughs) um
3: But, yeah, it's just, like,
1: it. it's just really <laughs> interesting. And it still, again, goes back to that same core of, you know, people just, just trying their best. Um, now, when we talk about drugs instead of food, although the line gets pretty blurry, um, we're talking about people trying their best to cope. And that's, you know, something we all have to figure out. So all all of that kind of intertwines into um, what fascinates me the most about people is just, you know, how connected we all are, how similar we all are. But the lines that we draw on what we're willing to accept and what we are not willing to accept can be really arbitrary sometimes. And I like exploring that. And so that's how Michael Pollan, the journalist, and Anthony Bourdain <laughs> ended up in a Venn diagram, because they're both kind of talking yeah. about the same thing. Um,
0: they're both, they're both, um so, I yeah, I- brought up the humanizing aspect of, of Anthony Bourdain, and I think Michael yeah. Pollan does the same thing. It's like they humanize things that um, we might not necessarily understand or be aware of. You know, whether it's food or culture or drugs or history, but all of these things, it's like they intersect. But I like it's how like Anthony always came at it from a an angle of authenticity and just um, digging into the nooks and crannies of food through the lens of culture and history, whereas Michael Pollan digs into the nooks and crannies of things like food or drugs or whatever from an academic perspective, but then he also uses his deep knowledge to reveal the human the there's just like the basic human nature of something like caffeine or mescaline or uh in the case of cooked like our history with food it's beautiful
3: yeah
1: yeah it's his the way he um tears down what you you go into those books thinking you're going to have an opinion and the way he delivers a story and a set of facts just totally changes what you thought you were going to experience. Um, And so like he's, he's met this, this blend of academia and storytelling in a way that just, I don't, I haven't seen in any other nonfiction writer ever. Um, And I've, you know, I've read a lot of research books. Yeah, not not like he does. Like I don't know I don't know what it is about him specifically, but he's just he's just an incredible storyteller and and he's got the the balls to come to you with a story about opium. And by the yeah, end yeah. of it, you're like, "Yeah, you you made the right choice." Yeah. I bl- <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. Yeah. And
3: Forgotten Yeah, it's just I just <laughs> <laughs>
1: and yeah and it just it that's the kind of storytelling that I always I I keep aspiring to where you know it, it challenges it challenges um comfort but not in a way that's combative it's he's not picking a fight with you he's, he's guiding you Conve- through he's conveying
0: information.
1: Um, yeah. 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 He's just, he's just, he's just telling you what he's learned in a way that is so convincing. Um, and it really challenges the way you think, um, without it with like I said, without it feeling combative, it just feels like a conversation between you and him and history and it's just he's brilliant so
0: for anyone listening just watching please go check out michael <laughs> paul or anthony bourdain's work it'll it'll yeah. it'll make crystal crystals and and myself <laughs> our outlooks and and just approaches to things much more uh
1: it'll make it'll make clarifying. everything make sense i think yeah. yeah 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 it'll bring a lot of clarity yeah i agree with that yeah yeah cool i well, didn't know uh, Jonathan also read michael Pollan.
0: yeah yeah that was awesome and i, I just like very spontaneously yeah. came up with the idea of calling us the pollinators as his fan
1: club so, yeah I'm, i hope that's I'm, a real thing i'm good <laughs> I, Yeah, we should put it in our in our instagram bios if there's enough row
0: oh fuck yeah <laughs> The pollinator yeah. Michael Pollan fan club. I'm so down for that. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Let's it. Closing out. Uh, what are you currently reading, watching or listening to that you want to share with uh, viewers and listeners? Uh, that's not Michael Pollan or Anthony Bourdain because we've, we've uh, swooned <laughs> over them
1: enough. Um. <laughs> yeah honestly i i can't say that i'm watching anything i i haven't watched anything in a while lately i've been reading um i'm i'm reading j.e hannaford's the skin um so she's indie i have it i have it back here um this beautiful book
3: um and she um she's written about selkie's um and
1: you know kind of an old old feel of magic and i'm told that it it really defies your expectations which obviously is something that i really like so i'm quite looking forward to reading more of that um and i think more more people should read it um i know um Benjamin from literature and lo-fi had an interview with her recently. So that was, that was a lot of fun.
0: Um, As part of her, his uh, February, she wrote, I think.
1: Yeah. February, she wrote. Yep. Uh, Yeah. He, he reviewed um, the skin and he interviewed her for February. She wrote and, and she, she seems like a lot of fun and, her writing is just beautiful and it, it's kind of a, an expression of what indie can do where, um, she kind of, it's familiar and yet it, it's so different and it, it's really good. She's really great. Um, nice. And then, um, I've had the pleasure of beta reading Angela boards next novel called through dreams. So dark, it's um a portal fantasy with like <laughs> cold war spy vibes and um it it's another one that just defies um categorization, <laughs> but Angela is another really stunning writer where again she you can see where she nods to her roots as a fantasy reader um some of the um some of the staples of the genre, but then she's taking it. She's yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, yeah. But she's
1: taking it to the new era of what indie can do. And it's she, she's, she's amazing. And maybe I'm biased because she's my, you know, (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know how to classify her, but like, she's amazing. Her writing is amazing. So I'm really looking forward to when that publishes it so that I can uh, make people buy it, (laughs) throw copies at people. Mm -hmm. And shout out
0: to Angela. She's fucking awesome. So yeah, she is. Is Is that book related? Is that book related to Fortune's Fool at all? Or is this a standalone?
1: No, so it's 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 another series. So doing one okay. giant series isn't hard enough angela is going to do two giant series concurrently so i'm reading um beast. i'm reading um <laughs> yeah it, this one's big i'm reading that one and while i'm reading it she's working on fortune's Fool's sequel so um because she doesn't have enough to do in the day i guess <laughs> she's <laughs> Um, she's going to publish two giant series at the same time, but they're, they're just, they're amazing. It's so everyone should go buy fortune's Fool and wait for everything that's coming next.
0: <laughs> and go check out episode seven. Cause both crystal and Angela were on with Andrew Stewart talking about food and fantasy. It's just like food. salivating so much. And
3: yeah,
1: <laughs> you can't <laughs> yeah, tell
0: was... already <laughs> after talking about <laughs> was... Michael Pollan and Anthony <laughs> Bourdain. <laughs> We love
1: yeah. food. <laughs> yeah,
0: that we do. Oh man. Cool. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. As always, an absolute thank pleasure you. to see you. Uh if you can tell viewers your social media. Thank listeners you very much for having social me. Media. Pleasure.
1: Um, so mostly I'm on Twitter. Um, it's just at Crystal Machar. Um, that's where I'm most accessible um and then i'm also on instagram which is again at crystal Mastar, which um i don't update as regularly and then my website is crystalmuchar.com, um which i update even less <laughs> um yeah I that's go pick everything.
0: up legacy of the Brightwash.
1: yes well i've got mine too i hope i don't drop anything there we go it's chunky you chunky also boy have... he's so hefty <laughs> So hefty. I'm, I'm trying to make the second one.
2: Bicep
0: the curls second one's a bit longer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really feel bad for people trying to read physical copies. Like, I, I feel like I owe them restitution or something for any more. Carpal title syndrome
0: amongst crystals reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man.
3: Yeah. It's going to be a
0: class right, <laughs> but thank you so much honestly i love hanging out with you as always so thank you
1: yeah
0: thank you and there we have it thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my chat with Crystal Matar. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more, or shoot us an email at SFF Addicts Pod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of FanFiAddict.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com s-t-r-o-n-o-z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.